Good morning, everyone. It's Lori Dahl's birthday today. Wish her a happy birthday. This Sunday, one of our worship leaders, we're so thankful for her. So um, we just got through the holidays, right? Um, and my dear mother-in-law, Kay, has been, we've been asking her to make the same dish, we think, since at least 2012. It's these cranberry or these yams with cranberries they're not too sweet no marshmallows not all this extra sugar but just these incredible caramelized long baked yams with these tart berries a little cayenne pepper it's just so good and so we ask her to do it every thanksgiving every christmas and i feel bad that she's kind of stuck making the same dish over and over and over again so i'm like I like these. I like to have these on days besides Thanksgiving and Christmas. I'm going to make these cranberries and yams, or these yams with cranberries, sweet potatoes with cranberries. I brought the recipe just so you all could see if anybody wants to take a look. Because when I try to make these um, sweet potatoes, I get very frustrated because they take hours and they require a tremendous amount of attention. And I don't have patience for that. <laughs> I don't, and this recipe, which I'm going to sit down with Kay sometime this year and say, let's rewrite this because I don't understand it. It's just like you're going back and forth, back and forth. You scallop the sweet potatoes, you pour half the water, you add melted butter, you cover with foil, you decrease the oven temperature, you increase the oven temperature, you remove the foil, you baste the potatoes, you boil the cranberries just before they split. You take half the juices, halfway through 25 minutes, you do that. Halfway through 30 minutes, you do that. And it's just like, I find myself sitting in front of this oven watching these sweet potatoes for hours. And it takes me 10 minutes tops to eat them. So when I think about eating these sweet potatoes, I get ambitious. But then I remember the laborious, messy middle, and I grow impatient. The messy middle. Have you guys heard that term lately? It's actually, those are buzzwords, let me tell you. You will hear them everywhere. Podcasts, influencers, um, preachers. Um, there are books. There are, there's influencers. They're all about the messy middle. Raylynn is all about the messy middle. Talk to her. It's, those are her buzzwords. They're not just hers. Google. Can we see the Google graphic, please? This is a business model for the consumer's journey from, buying, from thinking about buying to buying. So Google illustrates the buying journey of consumers as a messy middle. From the moment you decide there's a trigger that gets you to think about buying something, you get into this kind of loop of exploration and evaluation. Do I really wanna buy this product? And a marketer's goal, of course, is to get you out of the loop into a decisive decision as soon as possible, right? But they very brilliantly made this an infinity loop. Because <laughs> you can get stuck in this loop over and over and over again. And they call it the messy middle. Guess what else? Um, therapists like to remind you that real growth and change happens, some therapists anyway, I don't know all of them, I just know a few, real growth and change happens in the messy middle, the place of uncertainty and unknowns. 
And their aim is to train us to embrace this messy middle and understand and validate our emotions and feelings all along the way. I'm thankful for therapists because they can help us grow and move past that infinity loop and into a healthy, a healthier way of life. They help us look back and move forward, right? The Bible has a ton to say about the messy middle. In fact, I feel like the Bible is all messy middle. <laughs> Honestly, we get a little story at the beginning, we get a beautiful story at the end, and then we have a lot of historical and prophetic and um, poetic messy middle. I love it. And the Holy Spirit wants to be your counselor your guide, and your comforter through the messy middle. There's lots of words, lots of metaphors in the Bible also used to describe this messy middle. Google has one, the Bible has, let me read. Journey, seasons, the waiting, the desert, the hiding places. Then here's a long farmers, one farmers will enjoy, the dying of seed, planting of seed, watering, growing, and harvesting. There's a process. You can call all of that the messy middle, where all sorts of uncertainty, all sorts of things can happen in that time. How about the kingdom is here, the kingdom is coming? Ha! How does that work, Lord? Yeah. All those moments and spaces where we are invited to trust in, and put our faith in God, like it says in Hebrews 11, when people of faith put their trust and hope in God. It says in Hebrews 11:1, 1, they are being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. We are going through that loop. Sure of what I hope for, uncertain of what I'm going to see on the other end. We're like Abraham and Sarah. Abraham and Sarah, God promised them a new country. He promised them a son, even though they were barren. The story of Abraham and Sarah is a long one. It says that even though Abraham did not know where he was going, by faith he made his home in the promised land, like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents. The messy middle feels uncertain like that. Like, what am I still doing in a tent? I'm ready to put down roots. I'm ready to have this thing figured out. But I don't. I feel, I feel like I'm moving. I'm feeling nomadic and transient. And I want my home established in order. How often do we say, I just want to be in my own bed? Right? That feeling? For he was looking forward to the city with foundations whose architect and builder is God. Faith and trust are hard sometimes. But Abraham and his wife, Sarah, even with their faults and weaknesses and moments of getting stuck and doing the wrong thing, they still put their trust and hope in God, just like we can, even when we make mistakes and do the wrong thing and mess up, we can still say, I'm putting my faith and trust in God today. Hebrews 11, 11 says, Sarah's faith embraced God's miracle power to conceive, even though she was barren and was past the age of childbearing. For the authority of her faith rested in the one who made the promise, and she tapped into his faithfulness. I love that phrase, tapping into his faithfulness. It's like abiding in the vine, being grafted in, 
tapping in to the faithfulness of God. I know that was a long introduction. Don't worry, I'll still finish on time. (laughs) Today with our David series, I want to speak about tapping into God's faithfulness in the messy middle, in the wilderness. Pause for a minute to think about the messy middles in your life. Maybe a difficult relationship, maybe being stuck at work, maybe a family crisis, health issues. Maybe you're looking for a new job and you still feel stuck somewhere. You don't know what to do next. You don't see what's next. Does everybody have a messy middle that they can remember? Or (laughs) thank you, thank you. (laughs) Thank you for the honesty. David wasn't just the king of Israel. He's the king of the messy middle. And all of the psalms he wrote are perfect soundtracks to our wilderness stories, those in-between times. If you're new to the Bible, just a reminder, David was a shepherd boy, giant slayer, singer, songwriter, worshiper, leader, member of very dysfunctional families, including the in-laws, especially the father-in-law named King Saul, who's trying to kill him. David's grandson, 14 generations later, will be Jesus, the Messiah, who takes away the sins of the world. I've read this description before, but I'd like to read it again by Eugene Peterson in Leap Over a Wall. He's talking about David and how David related to God. He says, we're never more alive than when we're dealing with God. And there's a sense in which we aren't alive at all unless we're dealing with God. David deals with God. Deal with God. (laughs) As an instance of humanity in himself, David isn't much. He was an unfortunate parent and an unfaithful husband. From a purely historical point of view, he was a barbaric chieftain with a talent for poetry But David's importance isn't in his morality or his military prowess, but in his experience of and witness to God. You can laugh. I think it's funny. (laughs) But every event in his life was a confrontation with God. He's messy. He, He deals with all sorts of crazy stuff, but he's dealing with God. That's how we are. We're messy. We're messed up sometimes, but we get to deal with God. That's what I pray that every one of you experiences in this community. A life ever present with God, being fully alive and real with God, dealing with God. Last week, we looked at David finding his place, a refuge with his family and a ragtag group of warriors in the cave of Adullam. The cave of Adullam would be the first of many strongholds or refuges that David and his followers would escape to, and what I'm calling David's messy middle. Commentators say that David spent approximately 10 years of his life in this period. 10 years, all of his 20s, until he became king of Judah when he was 30. 10 years sounds short when you think of the Israelites 40 years in the desert, or Abraham and Sarah not having their promise until they're 90, in their 90s. David's story goes like this. He's anointed 
It's like he got his diploma. He got his degree. <laughs> he knew what he wanted to do. But it takes 10 years. In those 10 years, he slays a giant, marries a princess. But he ends up running from cave to cave, stronghold to stronghold. From the cave of Adullam to the plains of Engedi, it's like the red rocks of Palestine, and to the land of the Philistines. Do you ever feel like you've made it so far, but you know where you want to be or where you need to go next is, is out there still? And you say, oh, I'm feeling a little stuck right here in this in-between place. Remember that we're telling these David stories, and I know it's taking a long time. I was tempted after Christmas to be like, let's be done with David. We've been telling these stories for a long time, and I'm like, no, that defeats the purpose. David lived 10 years. This is just 10 years, and we're doing it in five weeks? I don't know. This is real life. It's slow. It takes a long time. There's a lot of boring stuff in between. So we're going to stick with telling these David stories because they teach us to hope in the generational promises of God despite evil. They teach us that God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble, exalts the humble. And they teach us how to worship and put our trust in God even when everything else is just feels stuck or dangerous. So I'm going to scan today. We're going to do a bird's eye view of some of these wilderness times. You ready? After the cave of Adullam, when David is in the forest of Harith, a young priest named Abiathar joins him. Why does just one priest join him? Because Saul has killed all the other priests and their families at Nob. So there's another difference between David and King Saul. David is looking for the voice of the Lord. David is welcoming the voice of the Lord with him, the work and worship through the priests. Now, David isn't just gathering warriors. He's also gathering their families. It says in 1 Samuel 23, one day news came to David that the Philistines were at Keilah, Stealing grain from the threshing floors, David asked the Lord, should I go and attack them? Yes, go and save Keilah, the Lord says to him. But David's men say, we're afraid even here in Judah. We certainly don't want to go to Keilah to fight the whole Philistine army. Like, David, what are you thinking? We're afraid. We don't want to go out and get in more trouble than we're already in. And what does David do? David asks the Lord again and again. He's a little insecure. So he asks the Lord, am I supposed to do this, God? Are we supposed to do this? And the Lord replies, go down to Keilah, for I will help you conquer the Philistines. So David and his men go to Keilah. They slaughtered the Philistines and took all their livestock and rescued the people of Keilah. Now, when Abiathar, son of Ahimelech, fled to David at Keilah, he brought the ephod with him. Real quick points on that passage. David inquires of the Lord. He protects the Lord's people. He mobilizes and encourages others along. 
and he allows the priest to take refuge with him. He makes space for God's word, worship, and work, even in the midst of their running. Next, King Saul hears about this, and he's on a rampage to come to Keilah and destroy David and his men. David inquires of the Lord, Oh, Lord, tell me what to do. Every time a problem comes up, David stops and says, Lord, what do I do? What do I do? Verses 13 through 18. So David, next passage, please. Thank you, Crystal. So David and his men, about 600 in number, left Keilah and kept moving from place to place. David stayed in the wilderness strongholds and in the hills of the desert of Ziph. Day after day, Saul searched for him, but God did not give, but God did not give David into Saul's hands. While David was at Horish in the desert of Ziph, he learned that Saul had come out to take his life. Verse 16. And Saul's son Jonathan went to David at Horish and helped him find strength in God. Don't be afraid, says Jonathan. My father Saul will not lay a hand on you. You will be king over Israel, and I will be second to you. Even my father Saul knows this. The two of them made a covenant before the Lord. Then Jonathan went home, but David remained at Horish. We see it again. The message version says, David is moving, going here, going there, going everywhere. It sounds like a Dr. Seuss book. <laughs> here, there, and everywhere. It sounds like this cat and mouse game happening. And day after day, it never stops. Saul is pursuing him, but God does not give David into his hands. David goes to, Jonathan goes to David. God provides friends and encouragement for David to help him find strength in God. Don't be afraid, says Jonathan. There's a little bit of foreshadowing here. Those of us who know the story of David and Jonathan know what happens to Jonathan. Jonathan dies with his father. It's horrible at the hand of the Philistines. This isn't pretty. This is ugly. The messy middle is ugly. 1 Samuel 23, 23. Saul continues to pursue David. Find out all the hiding places he uses and come back to me with definite information. Do you ever feel like that? Like, oh my goodness, for real. I feel like the accuser. I feel like the adversary, the enemy, whatever you want to call it. He's found every single one of my hiding places. Where else can I go? I have no safe spot. God. At another point, Saul is closing in on David, but the Philistine attacks Saul's people and distracts Saul. I mean, this is literally like from a movie script, from some live, some major action scene. You know those films that they, they're all filmed in like one continuous take? There's never a break, and you're like, oh my goodness, how'd they do that? I mean, that's what chapters 23 through 26 feel like in 1 Samuel. They never stop. Verses 28 through 29, message versions say this. Saul called off his pursuit of David and goes back to deal with the Philistine. And that's how the place became known as the Narrow Escape. David leaves there and camps out in the caves and canyons of Engedi. It's just this narrow escape time and time again. King Saul 
plays horrible psychological games. I don't know if he's playing psychological games. I don't know if it's the enemy, but he's just, he apologizes and then he turns around and tries and kill. He's, oh, my son, I'm sorry. And then he's like, I'm coming after you. It's just terrible. It's like, it's not just a regular chase scene. It's like those psycho thriller movies. It's like double bad. I don't watch those. Mm -mm. Surely every survival instinct at work in David's soul, fight, flight, and freeze, surely every one of them has to be at play. Three other incidents happen, and I'm just going to skim over them. Twice, because we might look at them later. Twice, David has an opportunity to kill Saul and be done with this. Let's just, Lord, he's standing right here. Let me kill him. But he does not kill Saul. He has the opportunity to take matters in his own hands, but he doesn't. In another encounter, David is super upset with a man named Nabal. And he's going out to kill Nabal. Because Nabal has been rude to him and he's not helping him when he's doing this little run around all around Judah. He goes out to kill Nabal, but Nabal's wife, Abigail, protects David from taking revenge on Nabal. In these key stories, David is constantly tempted to take matters in his own hands. You can hear his frustration, confusion, and weariness. Can you not relate in your messy middle? I'm like, I am so frustrated. I am so confused. I am so weary of doing this infinity loop. I'm done. Last week, we read the Psalms he wrote during this period. I'm going to read a little bit from Psalm 142 again. I cry out to the Lord with my voice. With my voice to the Lord, I make my supplication. I pour out my complaint before him. I declare before him my trouble. When my spirit was overwhelmed within me, refuge has failed me. The next scream, no one cares for my soul. My spirit is overwhelmed. If we cry when we're at worship here on Sundays, don't be surprised if you see us crying. That's what I do when I feel overwhelmed or sad and even sometimes happy. I come here and I pour it out before the Lord. Pour it out. Sometimes we're in a wilderness that comes from the consequences of our own doing. Like we just made a mistake and we're in trouble and now we're in a mess. <laughs> Sometimes that happens. And when that happens, we need to ask the Lord to show us, how do I fix this? How do I repent? How do I humble myself? How do I, how do I be reconciled and make restitution, right? In those situations. Other times we come into wilderness because of circumstances out of our control. I feel like we all got stuck in a messy middle in 2020, right? Can I get an amen? <laughs> that was a messy middle. <laughs> and when we find ourselves there, we can respond in very unhealthy ways. I've got a list for you. We can deny what's happening. We can minimize Blame others, that's the easiest one to do. 
We can blame ourselves. We can rationalize. We can intellectualize. I like to intellectualize. This is happening because A plus B equals C. Oh, that makes me feel in control. Makes me feel like I know what's happening. Research says, they say, the internet says, you know what? That can be a real waste of our time. I'm, I'm not saying we should be dumb, okay? That's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying, what are we doing to, um, what are we doing to ease our pain? What are we doing? We can, we can distract ourselves. TV, substance abuse, hyper-religious activity, hyper-exercise. I did a lot of walking in 2020, and I think it's good for me. I think it was good that I walked. It was better than becoming hostile. Hostile is another option. <laughs> so I'm really glad I was walking. It helped me not be so hostile. <laughs> I love David's honesty. He's not in denial. He's not minimizing. Intellectualizing. He's not even blaming Saul. Can you, he's not, he's not calling Saul by name. He's not, it's an interesting, it's an interesting thing in, his, in the Psalms. He doesn't blame it all on Saul because he protects Saul. He protects Saul from his own mighty men. That's another story for another day. He pours out the reality of the situation before God and in the company of his community because these are songs. These are songs they're singing. Psalm 57, the other one written during this period, he says, my soul is among lions. I lie among the sons of men who are set on fire, whose teeth are spears and arrows. Their tongues are a short, sharp sword. For real, the messy middle of 2020 was that. We were all set on fire. Let's be honest. We were all set on fire. We all had spears and arrows. We all had tongues as sharp swords. Weren't we ready? But Saul is like, oh, I'm pouring this out before you, Lord. Here I am, not Saul, David. David is like, here I am, God. How are you going to rescue me? How are you going to rescue us? In the story of Nabal and Abigail, David does become hostile. I hope I'm going to tell that story. Aaron might tell that story. One of us gets to tell the story. David becomes hostile, and he is going to kill Nabal. And Abigail stops him. The temptation is real. In the wilderness, in the messy middle, David demonstrates a man who wrestles with the facts and the feelings, offers them to the Lord, cries out for mercy, and then he commands his heart to be steadfast and trust in the Lord. That's what I was doing when I was out, when I get, when I get angsty and I go on my walks, I go to this park and I say, look at the mountains where my help comes from. And I command my heart. I say, be steadfast. 
be steadfast. I do. I like, I take my power posture, whatever that is. <laughs> I'm like, be steadfast. Though the mountains shake and the earth roar and the nations rage, I'm going to be here. I'm going to plant myself. Psalm 57, one through two. Be merciful to me, O God. Be merciful to me, for my soul trusts in you. And in the shadow of your wings, I will make my refuge until these calamities have passed by. Years ago, I will cry out to the God most high, to God who performs all things for me. So I'm not kidding when I say I walk. <laughs> I, I like I like uh, Dimple Dell Regional Park, the goalie, the county park. And I walk on the top edge, and it takes me a long time to do the circle, depending on how long I go. And one time, this was a long time ago, maybe 10 years ago, I was walking over the edge of the park, and this giant rainstorm and thunderstorm came tumbling in. And I got scared, because I don't like lightning. And I don't like being out in the open in lightning. And so I started hoofing it, you know, <laughs> and I got to the pavilion at Granite Park and I was the only one in the park and I'm under this pavilion and it is crackling and shaking and booming all around me. And I was like, yes, in the shadow of your wings from your pavilion, I hide myself. <laughs> but for real, I had this revelation there's lots of descriptions of the hiding places and refuges, refuges of God being a tabernacle, or some translations say pavilion. And I was like, I'm literally in this pavilion. And this is like, my chest is booming. And I was like, that's what it's like. We're not hidden from the danger. We can see the danger. We can feel the danger. We can hear it. It makes our heart beat. It makes our... <gasps> We inhale a bit and we got exhale and we're in this pavilion. Ruth Ellen Dev Davis says this about praying lament Psalms when we pray them. Here's the remarkable thing. The lament Psalms regularly trace a movement from complaint to confidence in God, from desperate petition to anticipatory praise. Yes. Yet they make that move without ever telling us that the external situation has changed for the better. How I went from fear in that pavilion to exultant praise when the lightning and the thunder was still raging all around me. What has changed is the psalmist's experience of suffering and perhaps what has changed Perhaps that has changed only because she has dared to break the isolation of silence and knows that God has heard. Kelsey, would, would you come on up, please? She's just going to play some background music for us here for this next section. Don't be isolated in the messy middle and don't be silent. before the Lord. Allow Jonathan's to come alongside you. Listen to the wise Abigail's stopping you when you are hostile. 
encourage the people who are following you because people are following you. People are seeing you. People are watching you. They need encouragement. For 10 years, David sings these psalms. Sing, worship, praise, open your mouth so that the people around you hear what you're putting your confidence in. If you're in that messy middle, this is what I want you to hear today. God is with you. God is faithful in the messy middle. Even when evil prevails around you, God has a purpose. There's redemption and there are treasures for you, even in those unknown, uncertain places. God is with you in the wilderness. God is with you. Take heart, be honest, be real. Don't give in to temptation to despair or turn or be silent. Tap into God's faithfulness. So if we could get the next slide, please. Thank you. For just two minutes here, I want you to take a minute. Maybe you, maybe you take notes. Maybe you can pull out your phone and make a note in your reminders or your notes in your phone and write down, describe a messy middle or wilderness for you, either currently or in the past. Be honest. How does it make you feel? Write it down. There's something powerful about writing it down. Present the wilderness and your feelings to the Lord. And when you are ready, declare your trust out loud. I'm just going to take two minutes. Okay, could we stand, please? Um, Crystal, could you give me the last psalm, the last words? If you'd like to, I just invite you to read this psalm out loud with me. I want to hear you, those of you who are willing. <laughs> My heart is steadfast. Oh God, my heart is steadfast. I will sing and give praise. Awake my glory, awake lute and harp. I will awaken the dawn. I will praise you, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing to you among the nations. For your mercy reaches into the heavens and your truth into the clouds. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be above all the earth. Amen. Amen. Thank you for declaring with me. Thank you.
if you would like prayer today, I'm available. I know Aaron is um, teaching the children today. If you need prayer, I know he's available. We've got Mike available. Anyone you come, you may might have come with that you're close to, they will pray for you. Reach out. Don't isolate. Declare your trust. Tap into God's faithfulness with others. Amen. God bless you.